when you're backpacking around Europe, you get all like the, the kids on vacation. When you're backpacking in, in Ukraine, <laughs> you get like every person from every walk of life that's involved in war comes into this one little cocoon, so to speak. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Team Never Quit podcast. As always, thank you guys for listening and watching, and please don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. So today, before we get to our special guest, let's kick it off with our usual Patreon question of the day, which is, what is the weirdest hobby that you've ever tried? This for you too, Nick. You got yeah. so man, we just oh, flashed this question out. Yeah. I, yeah, it's a little more. It's a little jarring every now and again. A question will come through that you got to put some thought into, and sometimes if you put after a while, you're like, "Oh, I, I definitely know the answer to that now." <laughs> Hobby. Good God, I have to think about that one. <laughs> oh man. Uh, I've always been like a weird hobby person. As a kid, I wanted to try coin collecting, stamp collecting. I would collect random like dried flowers. I've always been that person that's a collector of things. Mm. Um, you are nostalgic for sure. I'm very you, nostalgic. You can also <laughs> you could also make it like a cool hobby, like a unique hobby. I feel like so anything that's just kind of different and and coolish. I think mine is beekeeping. Um, not it's not for everybody, but I love beekeeping. I love getting in there and checking on the bees. I love harvesting the honey um i love planting pollinators around like i love the whole spectrum of beekeeping so i think that's mine what do you got brother it's actually one that i, I kind of came across recently and it's kind of addicting but it's kind of geeky like uh metal detecting oh i like that i always thought that was pretty oh, really? sweet dude like bring i wasn't actually, expecting uh, you to say that but I, <laughs> I i actually have one of those so i know what you're yeah, yeah. What you know Especially if you find something. I think that's kind of like hitting the first golf shot pretty solid. You're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of got me, you know. And, that, and if you find something, that's cool, man. So I was in uh, the Carpathian Mountains, which are in uh, West Ukraine. And there are all the World War I battlefields out there. Oh, yeah. So we were going through that thing with a metal detector. And you could find, like, old artillery shells, like bullets, uh, like knives, and all sorts of, like, wild stuff. And it's been buried there for, like, over 100 years. And it's just it's always fascinating to, like, Kind of like the architecture and history and stuff is always something that appealed to me. So I thought that was like super cool. That is awesome. I can't imagine what's buried out there because a lot of that stuff's still untouched, right? Like you can't get back in there. Completely, yeah. If you like that kind of stuff, I have a book for you um, for your downtime that you've got so much of. American Gun by Chris Kyle. He, before he died, he had written this book and he went through the history of all of the guns um, from the 
American Revolution, and it, it went through, like, each battle and how the guns kind of shaped the battles and how, like, it's really interesting. And he goes into detail about all of the ammunition and all that stuff. It's really cool. And the history that, that's wrapped around it. What about you? Um, I don't know about a weird hobby, but I would say a hobby of mine is collecting a, a little knickknack from every country that I go to. So I've got a uh, just a whole area of my closet that is just kind of a shrine to every <laughs> every single destination I've been out of country. Yeah, typically. the grandparents did the magnets. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the fridge. Uh-huh. Going to grandma's house and it's completely <laughs> head to toe. Boise, Idaho. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I guess I, I've been thinking about it since that's kind of what I want to go. I guess stickers. I collect collect stickers. I'm kind of a sticker nerd. And patches. And patches. That's a military thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But if I like, go back to the old school thing, it'd probably be comics. Yes. And you are a cars. comic person. I, 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 I am. And I, you're a nostalgic toy person. I am. I, I, so Like a vintage toy person. Right. I can't believe we said that out loud, but yeah, that's Sorry. the thing. So that's all right, though. <laughs> Marcus likes like, the old Transformers, the old Spider-Man... The, From a kid, know. you know, when you were a kid. So yeah, good, those kind of things. All right, that's good. Let's get this All going. Right, let's get into it. So today we have got a really great guest for you guys. Nick Allard had been living a normal life in Austin, Texas during the onset of the war in Ukraine when he suddenly experienced two extraordinary events, events that really gave him a new life perspective, compelling him to leave to Ukraine just a few weeks later in hopes of telling stories of those in need. In Ukraine, Nick met a man whose life had been torn apart by the war, and he created a film around his account called Dima. Welcome to the show, Nick. Pleasure to be here. All right, brother. You're a Texas boy? I'm a California dude, bro. Okay. I'm an Austin, Texas boy, if that if that counts. <laughs> that's that is definitely <laughs> that's our that's our melting pot from from where that's where our California residents go, yeah. Yeah, it's the mix, yeah. I was part of that little cult that's in the middle of that little city there yep <laughs> so yep. give us a little background on you where'd you grow up and just a little little tidbit about you so i grew up in in carlsbad so i kind of grew up in kind of like that military town kind of vibe you know early years were in in san diego and then eventually uh went up to carlsbad um i was a i was an athletic type kid most of the time growing up so this kind of like journalism, war stuff, it was always there as a kid. But I mean, ath- athletics was always like the, the, the king for me when I was growing up. And I did that all through my childhood. Um, eventually went on to walk on and play football in college as well. So that was all, you know, kind of just my life growing up was just like as a kid obsessing on war movies. And, then as, and as I got older, it transformed into like that athlete type. And once that ended, it kind of like transitioned back into kind of what I'm doing now. So it's kind of all come kind of full circle. I was going to ask you that. A lot of the athletes, when you guys get into your sport, you're so focused on what you have to be doing, but there is something else that keeps your attention. There's like a hobby or like the movies, the war movies. So there was something, Mm -hmm. it was parallel with you. You just weren't into it yet. Yeah. It's just like, it takes up all your time. I mean, like being an athlete, like that's all you really know. And that's all that's kind of like, you know, really like validating in your kind of space. Like oh, when sure, you're yeah. 
going up through elementary school and high yeah, school. Especially at that there's age, no, yeah. there's no like war movie club, right? You're going in there like, nah, I'm, I'm busting out weights and, and tackling people. That's kind of like the, the normal thing and kind of like the communal thing to do. Right. So it was always kind of the thing. Cause that communal feeling was kind of more, you know, important than anything, you know, growing up as a kid, like, you know, it's the football team. You're with, with friends through that way. So that was just, it just kind of, it was always at the back of my mind, but you know, obviously athletics is always going to, uh, take precedent in the kind of society that, you know, obviously we have in America for sure. Oh, sure. Civilian warfare. That's where we do it on the football Absolutely. field. Absolutely. That's yeah, so we don't kill each other. <laughs> what college exactly. did you go to? Uh, I went to, I went to Cal. Oh, nice. Berkeley, right? Yeah. I went to Cal Berkeley. And then I spent like one little stint at San Diego state for like a year. And then I went back to, to Cal and finished up my degree up there. Nice. What brought you to Austin? Um, Honest to God, it was during COVID and I was bored and I was like using like the U.S. News, Wolden Report, like top cities for like young peeps. And I was like, you know, let's just give this thing a go. And it was like that between that and Nashville. And then I got to Austin and I was like, yo, this place is kind of cool. You know, it seems like the young and hip place to be. So I said, you know, let's give it a go and move from I was living with my parents for like a, a few months during COVID. And I just wanted to get out. And I was like, dude, let's go to Texas and do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. during nostalgic, I was listening to that. Matthew McConaughey book, Green Lights on the Way the Whole Way. So I was like, bro, I'm, this is like, I'm getting that. You can listen to anything Matthew says. It's good. As <laughs> we're going into this. Yeah, he's one of our Texas roles. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Yeah, you know, know what I'm And about? I'm going through West Texas when I'm listening to that book. Too. Right, like, that's oh, the best place to do it. Because yeah, West surreal. Texas is huge. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, then what? Fast. Yeah, it was fast, like during winter, fast. too. It, great word. It was that's a trip, a great word. too, because it was all snow. Like, you know? Really? Snow in West Texas? <laughs> Man, dude, we had the last few years. We've yeah, had the weirdest just, weather. I mean, when I was driving through there, it was just nothing but snow. So it was kind of tripping me out because, you know, when you're <laughs> a Southern California kid, you don't know jack about Texas. You're just watching cowboy movies all yeah. the time. And all of a sudden, you're walking through here, and it's like blanketed with snow. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? You know, it's kind of a trip, you know? <laughs> like, I thought these Rocky Mountains would be a lot more rockier, right? <laughs> we don't normally get but that. Yeah, we're the horses and stuff, you know? Well. Well, I guess that was during the crazy uh, weather that season. weird freeze that we had. A biblical freeze. It snowed and stayed. That's when you came through. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, I was I was uh I, I was actually in Austin during all of that. That was a super wild experience for me too. Yeah, because normally it's not like that. We normally do not have those kind of temperatures. Um, yeah. so that was a weird year. That was a very weird year. And it sounds like your year got weirder. Can you tell us about that what happened in Austin? So um, I got to Texas in 2021, and then like kind of after acclimating it, eventually got into 2022. And you know, I was kind of like a, an entrepreneur. You know, that's kind of what my job was, and I spent most of my time. My life was absorbed by that. And right around like 2022, I started like diving deep into me because you know, obviously, I was I was having stuff going on that you know, mentally I wasn't feeling right and kind of like do a lot of introspection and kind of diving deep into that. And, you know, I went on and, you know, doing an entrepreneur thing. I went and flew out to Peru and like did an ayahuasca retreat out there, which is really introspective. Um, oh yeah. That's one way of saying that you were soul searching is what you were doing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's the most strong soul searching in the world. I mean, goodness, <laughs> like it, that stuff kicks your butt for sure. <laughs> It, has, it definitely has a purpose for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like when you, when you go out there, you know, people kind of like look at me and like, dude, are you like some sort of hippie? I'm like, 
dude, like these hippies got some, some nuts to go out and do that thing, dude. Like this thing absolutely just like kicked me, kicked my butt. But by the end of it, like it was always, it was all in, you know, for you right? instead of like, you know, in at you, that's right. You know, just doing it to get high or anything like that. If that makes sense. And it was, it was really introspective and really helped, but came back to, to Austin after that. And, um, kind of was like in that little euphoric phase after the ayahuasca where you feel like, yep. you know, oh, like everything's great and everything's good. You know, like, you know, I'm going to start like teaching people kind of what I've learned through this introspection. I start like slamming these crazy life coaching videos on the internet and all my friends were like kind of perplexed what the hell this guy's doing. He's being a true guy from Austin, slamming all these life coaching videos on the internet. And, but at the end of the day, I felt like it wasn't the right thing. And a lot of my time that was spent doing that, I remember just peeking at Ukraine all the time, like just checking like the news and like peeping at it, like what's going on here or like not even checking the news, but checking these uh, discrete channels where you're not necessarily getting what's shown on the news. Right. And I remember looking at these, like these, these discrete channels and thinking to myself, like, why is the news not showing this? Like, this is, this is not coming across my feed in, on NBC or ABC or any of the bigger news outlets. And like, how is this sneaking past them? Cause it was just, it was brutal. And, you know, I, I started to lean towards the prospect of like, maybe I should go there and try telling people this, but you know how, like I was thinking back in my mind, you're, you're, you're quitting. You're just going to be quitting this, this idea that you set out on to like be a life coach and stuff. So, you know, this, this stuff's a distraction. And uh, I kept pushing through it and kept fighting, you know, through it thinking that this was the right choice, but you know, obviously on one day, like everything just kind of came to a, to a full stop and uh, kind of made me think about like why I was really here to, and what I'm supposed to be doing in the first place. And, you know, um, yeah, obviously your, in the, the video that Hunter Find showed, yeah, we man. talked about it. It's kind of like the woman shows up to my door, you know, hands zip tied behind her back. I have to go out, grab into the house, come grab a bear scissors and cut her off, cut it loose. And yeah. So um, can you, for people that don't know that story, can you give us like walk through that day where you were living in Austin and someone just showed up at your door? Yeah. So I was just, I was at my house and I was just knocking out emails on my, on my, on my computer. And, um, all of a sudden I just hear this knock on my door and I'm like, it's like 12 o'clock. So it's, it's not like a, like, you know, like a routine, like in the afternoon, maybe a friend's coming. I wasn't expecting any guests. I'm like, oh, someone's coming here to try and sell me solar panels or something. That's what's going through my mind, like as I'm going up to the door. And all of a sudden there's this voice just saying like, it's mumbling and I can't like depict it. I'm like, who's mumbling? I looked at the people and it's just like the people's dirty. So I can't really see very well through it. And it's just like this, this like black and like brown figure, like just like with her head down. Um, and then all of a sudden I just kept hearing, please open the door, please open the door, please open the door. And I'm like, okay, and open it up. And I turn around, she's got these zip ties, like firm uh, behind her back. And she's like saying, help, like three guys said, try to rape me. I need you to get me out of this right now. And I'm shook at that point. I'm like, oh my God. So I just start back in the house, come out with the scissors and, and start cutting away. And it's just, it was completely unexpected. You know, it's just something that, you know, it made me stop everything, right? It's just not something that where I was going to continue going down the same route I was going. And, 
you know, it's kind of the day that I had there. That that is an insane story, though. How old was she? Uh, I don't, I don't, I couldn't tell. I didn't know. I, I don't even remember her name. She and it was just like a thing that's. She might have been like in her early thirties, my guess. And you called the police or what? What was? What they were already looking for. Her. Oh, they were. Yeah. Because she had been going from houses, like she went to like four different houses and she was knocking on doors and everybody saw her and said, no, you got to get out of here. Like, this is too much for me or, or whatever had happened. Uh, because there was a restaurant down the street uh, she went into with the same predicament, saying help, help. Everybody freaked out and she just came running back out. And there was a car, someone left their car running in the parking lot. And she got into the car and managed to like like maneuver it somehow, but she slammed it into the side of the restaurant and then pulled it out of the restaurant somehow with her hands tied behind her back. Don't know how she did it. And she she like screeched it around the corner and then got just crashed into something else, got out of the car and started going to other people's houses. And I could still see the, the, for me afterwards, it was still haunting for me because I could still see the, uh, the tire screech marks on the road for like weeks after it had happened. And in the dent in the side of the, the restaurant, um, but she had went to like four houses and they all said, like, no, no, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. So it was a very, you know, it made me think like, why? Like all these houses said, no, the restaurant said no. And then finally came to mind and it was like, a yes. And it was, oh my yeah, I still, it's still like, I still can't tell the story like perfectly because I still think about it and like, why all the time, if that, if that makes sense. So the police were able to get her and help her? Uh, yeah, they were already like, as soon as I, I uncut her, um, I asked her if she like needed me to call the police. She said, no. Um, and I'm sitting here like, what do you mean? No, like you just experienced this. This is like horribly traumatic. You want you probably want to tell them this. She's like, no, I'm good. She literally walked down the steps and I'm sitting here like, why? Like that didn't make any sense to me, but she only made it like, she only walked like 20 feet and then a patrol car pulled right up and it was because she was already they were already looking for her. they already got the calls yeah um so it wasn't like a thing where i needed to call him or anything and that's it she just drove out of your life just oh like she came God. in there i'm such yeah, a warrior like i would have been up at the yeah. police station like okay what happened to her that's crazy yeah. so she just disappeared out of your life as fast as she came in that, yeah that, that'll change things and that's traumatizing for you too like wondering what happened to her where you got was any idea she? what happened to her no, I actually went and requested the police report because I actually was curious as to how the investigation went or what happened. Um, I, I never knew after that. Like, I, I literally didn't even, like, it was one of those things where like, for me, like when things like that happened, I have a tendency like to numb out. And, you know, I just went in and sat down and just like everything stopped. And I didn't know what to think, you know? And um, now I'm trying to get more answers as to what exactly happened afterwards. But, you know, no, not really. I hope she's okay. I mean, somebody obviously yeah. messed with her bad enough. Was to... she dressed? Uh, I don't think she had pants on, though. No. She just had a t-shirt on. Ugh, how traumatizing. Well, you obviously were put in her life for some reason. I mean, there was something happened, and you were the one to to answer that door. I mean, Austin's weird, dude, but that's, that was crazy. Yeah, that is nuts. Yeah. All right, so then what? So then everything stopped. I, I just, the life coaching videos or whatever, I just like stopped filming. I was just sitting there and like, just, it just a complete numb out. Like, it's just not, I couldn't think of what to do or how to think of it. And 
I literally went to like this, this week of like reflection. I tried to get my mind off it. You know, I was going to the buying tickets to the, the Willie Nelson 4th of July picnic, hoping that kind of get my mind off the whole thing. <laughs> went and saw country songs and tried to like, yeah, yeah, just, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Just go out there and, and chill it. But it kept coming back and coming back and coming back and, and doing all that. And um, I think I had, and for, for me, you know, when any, when things like that happen, um, there's a tendency for me, I have to find a way to assign meaning to it. Otherwise it's just, it's just a thing that happens and just becomes like, you know, like a crutch, if that makes sense where, cause like, I, I don't know what could have gotten me over that. If I hadn't been able to like assign meaning to something like that or, or to give it purpose. Um, and this, it was a weird gut thing where it was like, this thing, this is going to, this is Ukraine. This is what this is about. Like, this is obvious. Cause and when I was in that, when she came to my door, I was writing an email and this email was going to go out to like a mentor within this, this community. And this email would have put me over the edge of where like, I'm jumping in with two feet into this life coaching idea. Now, like, this is it. Like, as soon as I press send on this thing, you know, there's, there's no turning back. I'm a guy that doesn't go back on my word. When I say I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it. So if I put my both feet into this, I'm gonna do it. And as I was drafting that email, I get the knock. And that's what really tripped me out about all of it. I was like, I was about to make that. I was about to make that call, and she showed up. Like, are and, you ready? Yeah. Well, that, that's that's the beautiful thing about if, if, if life yeah. has a way of stopping you in something. And the good yeah. part is, is you notice that. Don't trip out about it. Don't freak out about it. That, that's how it's supposed to be. Like, what was the purpose of her coming to your door? So you were sitting there, the one that was going to help her. Because in in order to put yeah. you right there where you're at right now, there has to be a catalyst. And. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it a few times now. Like you, you're able to see stuff like that. that there's a difference between yeah. you and a lot of other people. A lot of people can't see those kind of signs. I mean, those are yeah. life patterns. If one thing goes wrong, hey, that's a day, all right? Days are hard. They're supposed to be. But when you have two and three, th especially over, over three, like if it's just constantly pushing you in a certain direction, a lot of people can't pick that up, man. That's why their life gets so difficult. You saw that, and now you're at where you're, that's your purpose. That's how you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was like the, the catalyst of me going, but I was hesitant. And obviously, you know, obviously like anyone yeah, would be hesitant a to nudge. do something like that. Well, didn't something huh? else happen <laughs> after nudge. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little nudge. So didn't you have yeah. something else that happened too that would be your, your other catalyst of going? Yeah. So it was a weird thing where like I was getting ready. I was like, all right, I'm going to pull the trigger on this. And, but the only thing that kept pulling me back was like, I, I could die doing this. Like this is, it's not uncommon, especially in, in Ukraine to see journalists get killed. I mean, this is a, it's a massive full on country on country war. Like people think, I think at this point, I don't know the exact figure, but I think it might be over a hundred journalists that have been killed in the war. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going out and, and doing this and you can get killed anywhere. There was a journalist that was in her apartment in Kiev and a missile struck it and, and killed her. Um, so like there's this, there's, there's things like that do happen. So I was hesitant on making that full commitment, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so that kind of held me back. And as I'm thinking about this, I plan on going doing paddleboarding with my friend in on Lady Bird Lake. And he was telling me, I was telling him, thinking about what I was going to go do. And he was like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, you could die doing that kind of stuff. Right. And I said, yeah, you know, but you know, it's, 
it's that's life. You know, I could die anywhere, anytime. Obviously, that's just like the the cliche phrase people come up with, and when they're trying to justify a decision, so to speak. So I kind of half meant it. Uh, and he yeah. was like, you know, you're probably right, dude. And literally, I'm not kidding you. Like uh, 20 minutes after we had that conversation, he he had these. He falls off his paddleboard and starts drowning. And like he had wear he had these black military boots on. And before we went out there, I asked him if he knew how to swim. He was like, yeah, like the half-hearted, like, yeah, 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 no. And he was wearing military boots on a paddleboard. And so the water got started sinking into it. And so he was bobbing up and down like this, like he, like this guy is like critical. And so I, I, the only thing that saved his life was the leash on his leg. I think that's my, that was, that's my idea of how, what did it. Uh, so I'm diving in uh, to, to pick him out from, pick him up from under the water and he's just like flapping everywhere. I'm getting like pun- literally almost punched in the face. I might've been his elbow, but it was just hitting me in the face, like trying to get him under control. And in front of his tongue, he bit because he was panicking. So there's blood, like it's, it's like coming into my face and going onto the board. Um, they're like trying to get him like on, on like stable and like holding him up. And like, so I have to tread water and then have him in one hand at the same time. Um, and like my legs are just churning like as fast as possible, just like full adrenaline churning the legs, just trying to keep everything going. And then he puts his arm on the side of the board, like trying to propel himself up on the board and get on. And the weight from the boots, like combined with him putting it up there, his shoulder just goes click. And he completely dislocates his right shoulder as he's trying to put it on there. So now this guy's got one arm left and I'm trying to, one arm him onto a paddleboard so like it's in, in the angles are all off and i'm thinking like no this is like this dude's gonna die if i if if i don't get help right because there there's no way i was able to do it by myself i didn't have enough hands i need like two more to be done right and you know, i remember we were in the middle of ladybird lake like shore is like 200 meters in in the other direction um and i remember just seeing these people up there just slamming hard seltzers and, and partying. I'm like, yo, you guys need to get over here. Like this guy's going to die. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, like get, get the F over here. And all of these people, like four different boards come, come paddling over. Some guy gets in the water and like manages to grab him up from under his butt and like propels him onto the board. They tie the board to uh, another one. They start paddling the shore and fire department was at the shore. They pick him up and then send him to the hospital. And at that moment, I, I wasn't in that moment where I realized that when I got out of the water, I was like dizzy. I was pretty sure I had like a concussion. You know, I, in my football days, I knew what it was like. Um, I had a few of them before and I was pretty sure that, that, that I had had one too in that moment. Um, but we eventually get to the hospital. I remember when we put him um, onto the bed and he's, you know, they, they put his shoulder back in and gave him painkillers. I just remember thinking like, this is ridiculous. Like, like the fact that events like this can happen. It, this was two weeks, almost a little over two weeks after that woman had showed up to the door. Um, and it happened after I had been thinking about death for like two and a half weeks. And I'm like, this isn't God like subtly pushing me somewhere. This is God like, you know, Spartan kicking me off of the edge, telling me to go. <laughs> Sidekick to the chest. If, if that makes Oh yeah. Oh God. So it was a total Leah. It was a God's Leonidas kick to the chest. That's, it's that's unmistakable what it when it like. happens yeah. to you. There's a difference between all yeah. the other stuff and coincidences. If you, if you believe in those and then there's a straight kick, you can feel it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that was actually my first thought when I jumped into water was like, when I jumped in there, 
I was literally, it wasn't like, oh, I got to save my friend or anything like that. It was literally the, the save my friend was a second thought. And that came a second later. But the first second, the, the first second, all I thought was, God, what the hell do you want, dude? Like, what is this? Like, this is ridiculous. And then I went into the mode of, all right, we got to pick this guy up and, and move him. Right. And that to me was, you know, the defining moment. As soon as I left that hospital, I was like, I'm, I'm gone to like, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to be able to convince me otherwise. Like this has to happen. Why and what I'm going to do. I have no idea, but I booked a plane to, to Poland. I think three days later, three days after that, I was gone. You know, that's how it works. Oh my gosh. Yeah. feels good though. Once you know that your, your purpose sets back in and there's no, there's no denying it. Every, when everything's kind of locked straight, it, it's, it's a lot better. People think it's scary. It's, like, yeah, it's not, it's not scary. Yeah, once the once the trains once the trains on the tracks, like obviously there's always a prospect of something happening. Oh yeah. Like, oh, yeah. When you get to Poland, you have no game plan. What happens then? Oh, zero plan. I, I just remember going in there and thinking, like, I know how to use a camera. I, you know, made all these little crazy videos and knew how to edit a little bit. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll just go tell stories. And when I got into Poland, it wasn't really much of a I wasn't doing any work there. I was kind of just doing a little bit of exploring. I wasn't pulling maybe two, three weeks, kind of like getting an idea of what Europe is like. Cause I'd never been to Europe in my life. The only country I'd ever been to is South America. Um, so this is my first time in a country like that. So we're just staying at hotels and, and walking around. Hostels. Dude. Yeah. I mean, excuse me. Hostels. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 Bunk, I'm just bunking at hostels and, and meeting people. Um, and the first, it was a very uh, interesting awakening for me. Um, all right. But anyway, I got to, to Poland and there was this, uh, there were refugees everywhere. And when you hop into, in that situation, it's just like you, you get, to, you get a, a glimpse of what it's really like to be there. And there's these people that are telling you these stories about like, yeah, my, you know, we lost our house. We lost our home. We have nowhere to go. This is all we have. Like we're bringing our kids in here with just a backpack a piece because they had to blitz out of the country when, when the invasion started and their whole families are having to live in college dorm rooms. Um, and, you know, thinking, you know, just thinking about like the, how critical the, the situation was. And that really spoke a lot to me. Um, and I think initially I was kind of questioning like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, like I'm in this hostel in, in Poland and there are these people and like, it just doesn't make sense. And like, I remember one day when I was having those thoughts, all of a sudden I walk into this room and there's this, this woman like playing her guitar. And then she starts telling stories about how she had to hear like missiles flying over her house every day. And they drove her crazy to the point where she had to, to, to go get a break and to buy going to Poland just to get a break from it and then go back. And they can like, these are, these people are dealing with these kind of things. Like I, you know, I didn't even know. Um, and after that, went down south and I think the next place that I went to, uh, which was interesting fitting was, was Auschwitz, um, in Southern Poland yeah. and, and, and visiting that and to see, to feel the energy that place has was, was, was something unlike I've ever, ever, ever felt like even being in Ukraine. Um, I remember specifically I, I had gotten there at like six in the morning was by myself and I was the first one in. There was nobody there. I was the only person that, that other than the, the gate attendant, I was the only person in the whole camp. 
and it was foggy and it was like oh, yeah. early in the morning and chilly. Yeah, right. And it's what you think it would look like. Mm-hmm. Like what you just described, yeah. if I went there and I, from, from hearing the stories about it, that's what I th- would think the, the weather would look like. Like on yeah. Band of Brothers, it just, it just, yeah. there's that fog. There's this like, I don't know if you ever noticed, like there's just places that carry energy. Oh, that you can feel. Oh, we it, notice. You know. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We notice. Yeah. Yeah. It was one. It was one of them, man. And like you hear the details, and you get to see. They have photos, um, of where specific things happened, and it's like we're looking at the photo of like a, a Jewish woman with her son, like walking down this path to a gas chamber, and you're literally looking at it exactly where it happened because the photo was taken exactly in that same spot, or or seeing like uh, people you know, burning bodies after they have been gas in this field. Mm. And you look into the field and you like, I, I look at the photograph and I line up like the angles of the fence posts on the outside. And you see that the fence posts look exactly the same. And the only difference is that the field is green. There's no mud there anymore. And like seeing that line up to me, it's just like, it's, it's, it's jarring um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I almost felt like it was setting me up. Like when I was doing these visits, it was like, trying to show me like what's this is this is this is what we're dealing with maybe not necessarily you know a holocaust but like the the human cost and the suffering right um is coming up and you know this is kind of like a, a pre like a warm-up for it if that makes sense um but yeah that that was that was my poland experience and i think a week later uh i, I went into ukraine so how, talk about that how'd you get over there from poland you can just uh, hop on a. Um, you can just hop on a, on the train, and go on in, and all that stuff still remember, running. All the trains and all the yeah, all the they, they're, they're moving running. those trains back and forth. You can't fly planes in there anymore because they'll, they'll blast them out of the sky. So you gotta uh, you gotta go in by train. Yeah, um, and those are usually like fifteen hour train rides to get to the capital. Uh, but when I had gotten in there, I just remember when I got onto the train, uh, I was just scared out of my mind. I'm like, dude what the hell like yeah okay i was gonna ask you that when as soon as you go in there and you're war you're in a war zone is different if if you've you've never been in one that that really hit me was the moment when they started doing the passport checks and there's just these dudes ukrainian dudes kitted out to the max like ak's and and their magazines and their pouches and they're like open up your bags i'm like oh my god here we go yes sir roger i had never (laughs) seen this stuff in my life and he's you know they're they're checking for guns and grenades and anything that you want to be smuggling in and they're they're giving you that that they're kind of they're trying to intimidate you. It's obviously it's their job. Oh, it's a yeah, war environment. To you. Yeah. When, yeah. When the men throw their armor on and put those those shells on their head, everything like that, there's an attitude that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure, you know, you knew that. That's that's where you see it. First of all. So what was in your bag? What do you pack when you're going into a war zone? Um, I had um, you know, the thing is, I try to pack light clothes wise. You know, I mean, I buy the kind of the merino wool clothing, so you only have to wear like two shirts everywhere you go. Yeah. You know, and only have to bring two shirts and a few pairs of underwear and all that. Uh, but the other bag obviously just had like a, a helmet and a vest um, and then a camera. Other than that, it was just kind of like basic living stuff. You know, I live I lived out of one backpack. If I wasn't going into a uh, you know into Ukraine, I would I could live with everything out of one bag out of a backpack. Um, but you know, when you go into Ukraine, you have to bring a bag for the body armor and the helmet. So that was always that's that's the other bag, if that makes sense. All right. So where where do you stay when you're there? When you showed yeah. up, 
And awesome. I, I, another, yeah, no, okay, so those those are still open. Another thing is that you got to imagine the the in Ukraine they're at war, so they're they're not focused on entertainment and all that travel, anymore. travel, yeah. and tourism, tourism anymore. <laughs> no, not at all. And usually the the people that you run into there, it's a totally different vibe. Completely. So like when you when you're in hostels in Ukraine, it's not so much. Um, how do you say it? It's it's not so much like the general like kid from like Italy who's on vacation. He wants to get drunk with his friends. Yeah, that you kind of see in like hostels in like France or in Italy. Uh, it's like dudes from all over the world that want to fight. Uh, people that are all over the world that want to um, volunteer. Humanitarian people. Uh, you also get your fair share of even journalists at times. Uh, so it's anything that you would see in like a war torn in a war country. Like they all kind of come into like this little like place together. Yeah. So it's a, it's an, it's a very interesting experience where it's like you're new when you're backpacking around Europe, you get all like the, the kids on vacation. And when you're backpacking in, in Ukraine, you get like every person from every walk of life that's involved in war comes into this one little cocoon. One spot, so yeah. To speak. yeah. Yeah. They all show up. Yeah, so it's like a weird, like, it's almost like I've never lived, I've never been to a military base, but I'm assuming it's like as if they like made it into like a like a, a barracks of like a military base and just threw in all the like the a hodgepodge of people. That's what the military is. Then you train them, and that, yep, that's yeah, how it works. Like you've got yeah, your admin, your yeah, it's all there. <laughs> your medical people. They all flock together. Yeah, and your fighters, and that's crazy. All right, so how long did it take you to, before you found your battle rhythm? Before you started getting into what you know you're supposed to do? Um, it took me a few months. I think like the first two months, I was just trying to get accustomed to what I was doing. I was just trying everything. I'm like, maybe I should just go. Did film, you just speak film the language, that. right? I speak, yeah, I can speak Spanish, uh, Russian, a little bit of Ukrainian now, too. How was it when you first got there? Was that the case? No. The language barrier is a big deal. I didn't speak it at all. Yeah, and that was kind of like a, a big thing for me in the beginning. Um, was like trying to get good at that. Because the only thing I could say in the beginning was all the bad words. So yeah, Of course, that's all we ever got people I, laughing. I don't know, why, why do those stick? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like, everyone uh, knows bad words in every language, but you can't say, hey, how you doing? What's up? I, I mean, I, I don't know where that comes from. but Yeah, I don't know. Thing. I think it just sticks because it makes people laugh. That, I, I noticed so. that thing, like, in any country that I'm in, like, whether it's, like, Peru or, um, or Ukraine, if I lead a conversation with, like, bad words, they always think it's hilarious because the <laughs> accent's all screwed, screwed up, up and, you yeah, sound, right? and you sound stupid, you know? It, oh. just, it is, it clicks. Same thing in America. Like, if people, like... From like when from foreign countries, when they start saying like bad words that more, normally most people from foreign countries don't know, right? It's hilarious. hilarious. It's no different in Peru. And, and think uh, you think they here. sound funny when they're trying to say English? You can't imagine how we sound trying to do that. Oh goodness, ridiculous! I know my redneck ass sounds. That's a lot. Of, I think that's why Americans don't learn different <laughs> languages or even try when we get over there. Because let me tell you something: we can do a number on some words. Oh my God! Yeah, absolutely. 
When I found that out, I, that makes me laugh everywhere I go because I try to, to, you know, hey, that sound good? No, I sound like a redneck. Just learned that, you know. All right. So how yeah, long did it start taking? You really, you really don't know how you sound like. I right. mean, you try your best, and it only comes <laughs> till the feedback later. It's like, dude, I know you probably, I know you like said that with every ounce of confidence in your body. But that came off so bad, dude. Like, right? Goodness gracious. Like, yeah. I think about that all the time with my Spanish. I'm like, I know that they, because you can see their face. Like, he's trying, though. He's freaking trying. <laughs> I think they dig that. I, I think when, when, like, when, especially white boys look like us, you're like, yeah, you know, if we actually attempt to get in there and, and dry it, it means a lot. I think it means a lot to them. <laughs> At least that's what I'm Absolutely. I'm going with. And I think, especially, I've noticed that in, in, in like South American countries, they notice that and they appreciate it. But I felt they appreciated it even more. Uh, in Ukraine, in my experience, just because I think it's just uncommon for Americans to be trying that language. I mean, everybody in grade school knows how to say gracias and adios. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But like when it comes to like languages like Russian or Ukrainian, like it's like it blows their mind. Like, holy crap, you know, Russian, you know, Ukrainian, like that's crazy. So it was it was it was always interesting to see how they reacted to that and the cultural differences for sure. Well, it's impressive to see somebody switch. It's so impressive to watch somebody switch languages. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if you can't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? Inglorious Bastards, that freaking Londa, Londa guy. He, the, I think he won an Academy Award for that. That sucker could change his from Italian to French to English to German. I mean, it, it sounded brilliant. It, it's something yeah, to absolutely. see somebody do that. And just like, I think it's another thing too, is Europeans, they, they find us hilarious in the fact that we only know one language. Yeah, like I know in Inglorious yeah. Bastards, they kind of hinted that, like where they like, they're <laughs> yeah, making they fun of Americans for not knowing right, like right, one right. language. It's, it's no different in Europe. It's like, if you know like three languages, it's like in Europe, it's like, so like, what's, what's the big deal in America? Like you go to a bar and start telling every, you start ripping Russian, Ukrainian and Spanish in the middle of the bar. You're like the, you're like, how about that? Like a, Goodness gracious, you're like a Rosetta Stone in that joint, you know? And, and, oh, and, you're the smart and, guy. It doesn't matter even if you're not yeah, smart. Yeah. If you speak three, three yeah. languages in, in America and you start rapping, you're like, the guy's a genius. Yeah. Speaking guy, of... What's well, he in his Wheaties, man? This yeah. guy, well, how does he do that? Damn. We have... Uh, <laughs> our sponsor is Babbel. Yeah. You yeah. Can, you can go... Uh, Learn as many languages as you like. Yeah, this is a perfect chance to plug. We have Babbel is sponsoring this podcast. So I actually used them before we became a sponsor too. Yeah, so that's... and you just go to babbel.com slash TNQ, right? And you get 55% off. So very rare do we get to plug something. I know, we never get like to it. plug <laughs> a, an actual sponsor. So I'm like, this is the opportunity. <laughs> All right, so I, I, was, I was watching a documentary the other day on Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he was talking about when he first came over here. I mean, he had vision. You talk about the American dream is that sucker coming over from where he did. And he goes, I only knew a few phrases. And I picked those up openers like, hey, how you doing? How's your day? And it kind of starts from there. And then it just builds because if you open up nice to somebody as opposed to the, the way we can normally do it, then it, it just, I don't know, man, it sets a tone, sets a precedent. I think people are more apt to talk to you. You feel that over there even when yeah. the war's on? Yeah. So Absolutely. Ha- at what point did you meet the guy that you're when you actually found your purpose there? Yeah. So the, the story behind that's kind of funny, too. Um, I was at, in Kiev and Kiev is kind of like the capital. It's the capital of the country. And um, at the time I had gotten there, like the war had it didn't leave Ukraine, but like the ground assault 
near Ukraine had been pushed back into into Belarus and into Russia. So as far as like the threat of of like grad rockets and troops that had kind of disappeared. Uh, but it was it, it, it's continually bombarded by missiles and, and kamikaze drones that come at night. Um, so that I had that kind of experience there, but I was still kind of very far from from the war itself. And I felt kind of like I wasn't really like finding that story because I was because of the geography situation I was far from it. So I started like browsing for cities. And this first idea that I had committed to, I had no idea. I had no idea where I was going, what city I was just going. I just picked one on a map. I'm like, oh, that looks close. We're going to go to Poltava, right? And so I booked a train to the city in Poltava. It's like about 200 kilometers from where the front was at the time. And that morning, that train was supposed to leave. Um, I wake up and a song starts playing on my phone. And I didn't open my phone. I didn't hit play or nothing. It just started playing. And I looked over and it was this song. It was uh, Odessa. Uh, by Charlie Crockett, this country song that, that I, had, I had been listening to like the past like few days. And I was like, this is weird. Why is this playing? And I, 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 I start to do it now. Like, I like start picking out signs and I'm like, there's that city named Odessa in Ukraine too, isn't there? And that's a pretty big city. It's about 200 kilometers from the front at the time. And I said, you know, there's probably people here there or people there that have these kind of stories and may want to talk about them. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust my gut on this one. So I, I canceled out the ticket to Poltava, the ticket to Poltava, and just next same day, I just went to Odessa. <laughs> wow, and, that works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and when I had gotten there, same kind of situation in Kiev. I was like, ah, I can't really find anything. Nothing's really clicking. Um, and then one day, like I remember sitting in the uh, in the hostel. I had been, I had been filming. Uh, a volunteer that day. So what he was doing, he was going around to the local uh, car shops and buying batteries to power artillery pieces. Um, I don't know. I don't know specifically what kind of artillery pieces, but it was, but he said, you can slap a car battery in them and it, and it gets them rocking and rolling. Um, and I'd filmed him. He was doing all that. And I get back to the hostel and this couple walks into the, uh, into the hostel and they're carrying all these plastic bags. It looks like all their belongings. And it just looked, it just looked like refugee, like kind of vibe. Cause I had seen it before in Poland. I know like when someone's like moving around a lot and right. they had that kind of uh, energy and vibe to them based off of uh, what they were carrying. And I'm wearing this press pass at this time. And the husband of that couple walks over and he just comes up and, and pops a squat next to me. He's like, hey, like, uh, are you a journalist? And you know what, this press pass at the time, so I, I kind of gave him like a half confident answer because, you know, I had just gotten this press pass from a Ukrainian friend that worked in the media there. So I was like, you know, I was like thinking, yeah, you know, I guess I am, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm a journalist. And he's like, um, I used to be a journalist. I'm like, oh, really? Like, where were you a journalist? And he said, Mariupol. Um, I don't know if you guys saw it in the news, uh, what happened in Mariupol or if that was that in the beginning of the war that yeah, made a lot start. of big headlines and uh the horrible stuff that had happened there. And my understanding of Mariupol at the time was very similar to like an average American understanding at the time. I just knew like something bad happened there, right? Or something really bad happened there. I remember hearing about it in a hostel in Warsaw about what had happened there, about the story about this family who had to uh, sleep in a basement for like, not even in a basement, but in like a, a shed with like this much airspace uh, for like three weeks because they were getting shelled so much that if they had even flinched out of that shed, they would just blow them to pieces. 
Uh, so they had to like sleep in this little shed for like a month. And that, that's the story. That's my understanding of what it was at the time. I like, got oh, some, some bad happened there. And I was like, were you there when, when the invasion all started? And all of a sudden you, you could see his face, like he was trying to get it out in that moment, but there was this pause when he was like trying to do it. You could see his eyes kind of like wearing off and into the distance. And it was just this gut instinct at that time where it just felt like, Oh my God, like, something something happened and it, it was it was bad and I, I instantly felt bad for him and I was thinking this might be it it was just something in that pause and the way his body moved and his tonality and everything I'm like this is it and after having like a minute conversation with him I was like you want to you want to talk about it on camera and he said yeah let's let's give it let's do it and you know after that went in and and I started uh asking him questions about kind of what happened like a pre-interview setup. And as he was telling me things before the interview, I was thinking, this is, this is, uh, un, this is ridiculous and, you know, and, and horrific. And I felt that it needed to be told and the rest is history. So now it's a document. Are you actually greenlit to do a documentary? Will it go on to streaming or how so does it work? It's done. Um, I completed it back in May. Um, the issue I'm having right now is getting it off the ground. Um, that's, what we're going to help. And yeah, it's just one of those things where it's just the financing of it. Cause you have to understand, like, not only did I like, um, like fund it, like every dime I, I had went into that film and being here. Um, because I, I believed in it so much and, and I felt that everything meant it you know I'm, I'm on my last leg at this point you know because like i i wanted people back home to understand and i was willing to throw everything i could at it like everything i had like to pay for the the, you know, the engineers the, the colorists the, the sound guys you know to to, to bring this thing together because you know you know there was a there was a inflection point like about three months into it where I was like, am I just going to slap this joint on YouTube or, or are we going to like go all the way? And I was hesitant to do it. And I remember showing like an initial screening. It was like the rough, rough, rough draft uh, to a group of friends in the hostel. And there was something about his voice and the way he tells stories and what had happened that it just cut the lights out in the building. Like, so to speak, it's just like everybody had their, had their eyes. He had everybody's attention. And I looked at him like, there's something different about this. I don't know what it is. Like, I, I think it would be a disservice on my end if I hadn't just thrown everything I could into it because it had, it just had a vibe to it that, you know, I can't put into words. That's how it if works. That makes sense. Like every other, everything yeah. that pushed you in that, in that direction, you know, we've talked about it and imagine everything yeah. you had up until that point was designed to get you to this one, like to pay for everything you had just enough. So if you give everything you got into your purpose and you know that God's put you on your path, it comes back around. That's where that faith. Yeah. I, th I think that was a really, a really big thing for me. Like it was, you know, it's all the risk. I think with anything, like it comes to the point where is this rationally a good decision? <laughs> Rationality right? just yeah. flies out the door, dude. Like, if I had like some, some Merrill Lynch this? financial planner come up to me and, and I told him what I was thinking about doing, he's like, dude, you're out of your goddamn mind. And but it, there comes to a point in time where it was like, this has to happen. And 
at all costs. Like there's, I, I can't stop. I can't like take a break, take a breath. Like this has to be done. And even if it like just destroys me in, in, in every way possible, I think what's that phrase is like, find what you love and let it kill you. Yeah. Like that's, 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 that's literally what it felt like. Like at that, at that breaking point, I remember I went back to Austin. I sold everything, my car belongings, um, anything that I could scrap. I'm like, cause I had to find a way to, to finish it, uh, the right way and to pay for the right people to get it done. And like, I knew with that, that, that inflection point right there, when I was like, this is going to take me down X path or Y path. Like, you know, you sell everything, you're going down the, the path, no return, you burn the boats. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's always a scary decision. I mean, for anybody in life, I'm sure. Oh, it ought to be the, if you know that's happening, that's how you know you're, there's only one more direction to go. Anybody ever hear yeah. say that phrase? You're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. That's how you know it. Yeah. There's certain things that come up, certain phrases we don't ever use unless you're in the position that, that you got put in. And I've seen a few people in your position, they say that. And then just see what happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like this faith thing, you know, it's, you know, I, I, before ayahuasca, I was not, I was, I grew up Catholic, but I was always a dude that like tried to skip church every time. Like I was not like the super religious kid, but I think after ayahuasca and then that's one. And then after those two events, you know, I, I just, I kind of gave up thinking that like, I'm in control of all of this. Like at the end of the day, like as much as I am in control of like doing these things daily to get this thing done, as far as like where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do and how I end up, you can't control like, that. That's not in my. That's not my job. Nah, you, know? you just control how you handle it. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird thing. It, it's kind of frustrating at times. The human condition, <laughs> you know. You're just like, oh, sure, it wants to fight <laughs> it. Yeah, you know, like you know, like just the the way I grew up and the things that happened, I had no control over it. Like I can't just stop this and go be a ballerina or something, right? Like, like this is it. Like this is it. This is what whoever wanted me to do. And like, I have no choice, but to, to get it done. And that's kind of just the position I've gotten myself into here. So, so what is the documentary about? Can you give us just a rundown on what people would see? Yeah. So like quick, like little synopsis of it. It's about this Dima who I met. Uh, basically it's, it's a, it's his recollection. So it's the film is, is an interview. Uh, so I did two one hour interviews with him. And so the interview runs through the whole thing. But as he's describing his story, I'm piecing together clips to show what happened uh, the best I could. Either cell phone clips from him or news clips, um, you know, anything that he could give me to, 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 to relay his experience. Um, and the premise of his story is this guy's. In Mariupol, the invasion starts, uh, you know, obviously they try to hunker it out for a little bit, things happen, and then they have to drive 300 kilometers through Russian occupied territory to get to safety over the course of two and a half weeks. And everything that they, that you, that you see in war, they, they got to see. Yeah. Uh, Regular people. These aren't, these aren't like journalists. These aren't soldiers. These aren't. Uh, this isn't Zelensky. This is nothing like the, what we see on, on, you know, on TV. This is just a regular dude. And he's given the mic for 36 minutes. And he tells it how it is and tells like what happened, you know, and, 
And I, I felt that was important to tell because I think the way that I think news nowadays, I think we all, we see the big heads, like we see the Bidens, the, the Zelensky's, the, the, the big heads, they're always talking about what's going on all the time, but how often are you giving the floor to a regular dude for 36 minutes? And I was just curious as to what the, why they're fighting, like from your vantage point. Um, well, from their vantage point, people, I mean, I've been here for a year and I, I practically live with these people. That's people what I was asking. All, all Ukrainian people, right? Yeah. Um, Life under Russian influence, for the most part, um, is is one that's it's not free. Like to an extent, I mean, you, when you look at it, like you, you can't really speak up against them economically. Um, if you look at like how Russia runs economically, half of the population is dirt poor um, and Ukraine is dirt poor and they see people in. Eastern or Western European countries in America live in a great life. And they're like, why can't we have that? Like, why can't we live under this? Why can't we be in, in the EU like everybody else? Like a, a great phrase that I heard from this one woman I met was Ukraine feels or Ukrainian people feel like we're seven, we're 10 years behind everybody. And it's perpetually like that. And we want to be able to have that, you know, financial freedom and ability to move on. And not only that, just the history that Ukraine and Russia have, it's, it's brutal. And it's in a lot of ways, barbaric. Um, what Ukraine has had to endure at the hands of what was it? The, you know, Soviet union ruled Russia. Right. I mean, there's, there's historical events that there's a lot of beef leading up to it where, you know, Russians tried to suppress their language um, in the early 1930s. Uh, there was a famine uh, a Soviet-controlled famine that took the lives of almost 4 million Ukrainian people mm. to the point where, I mean, when we talk about the Holocaust, that's only 2 million less than the Holocaust itself. I mean, this is the point where it was Soviet collectivization, where the Soviets came in and said, all of the peasant farmers in Ukraine, you, we're taking your land, we're taking your farm, and it's, it, it's owned by the state now. And any, any grain that you produce, we're going to come by and collect it and, and send it back to the state. Even if that means you starve, you know, we don't care. Like that's, this is, this is what, this is the government we're controlling now, you know, and, and a year later, 4 million of their people are dead to the point, you know, pe parents were instructing their children to, to eat their bodies when they died. Like that's how desperately starving a lot of these people were. And they get taught this, they don't forget this. And there is always that, that tension that you see between Russia and Ukraine, where it's this debate on who kind of has like cultural influence, where Kyiv was born, was it Russian, was it Ukrainian? But you see kind of the things that happened at the hands of the Russians um, on, in Ukraine itself. Um, they don't want to be a part of that anymore. I mean, Russians used to send Ukrainians to, to labor camps uh, a lot. Like that was, they, Russians were the concentration camp uh, how do you say the aficionados before the Nazis did it? They, they were the ones that had the labor camp set up. You know, if you spoke out or, or, or tried to act out. And that's, that's just the thing that, you know, over time, like it, it grows on them and they don't forget that. And they want to be a part of, of, of something new, if that makes sense. Well, it's perpetual. I mean, they're kids on the ground that unless you destroy the entire population, they're never going to get over that. No. I mean, you said they've been fighting for forever. That, that, that's what this is. That's how that works. They're just 
breeding a new population of people who hate each other. Absolutely. I think it's just the Ukraine and, and, and Russia. It's just like this. Ukraine has, you know, when I, I read about it a little bit uh, of Ukrainian history and their kind of their history. And for like a thousand years, it's very much been this. They're trying to get freedom. They try to call on someone more bigger and powerful to, to like make a deal with them uh, to help give them their sovereignty in exchange for something. And most of the time, most of those guys end up not holding up their end of the deal, whether it be with the Polish people, the Lithuanians, the Swedes, uh, even the Russians at one point, the Ottomans, like the Ukrainians were always trying to switch teams back and forth over the course of a thousand years. And they never really got it. They got it briefly uh, during the First World War, like towards the end of it. And then right when the the uh, Soviet revolution happened. Then all of a sudden the Bolsheviks came rolling through and then it was just right back to square one again. So yeah. like they've been always trying to, to gain that, that freedom. And it wasn't until the wall fell in, in 90 when they got it back. Yeah. And then to 2014, now they're seeing this thing, like right when they start to go down that election route, yeah. um, that all of a sudden from. it just gets stripped away. And now you got a full scale ground invasion into Crimea into the, to the Eastern parts of the country. Um, but it's also very complicated and, you know, it, it's, it, it's cause there's so many like moving parts involved, uh, in the conflict itself. But I, I, there's a lot of people that here that do believe in it. And that's the, the, the overall idea that I've gotten from it for I mean, sure. The one thing about Americans don't like is we don't know what's going on. Like if you ask one person, they'll give yeah. you a different answer. Like, why are you all even fighting? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, we get the Israeli what's going over in God. I, I can understand that. But I haven't gotten a clear answer on why Russia and Ukraine are going at it. And I don't think that's that's the thing about war. I mean, I don't think it's just who, who, who freaking knows. Yeah, it's so tricky. I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, as time went on, Ukraine was was really pushing for that democratic feel because yeah. you when after the the Soviet Union fell, Ukraine became a very easily corruptible country. Sure. Because all of these big business wealth guys, they started taking all of the state-owned Soviet machinery, yeah, yeah, and started just producing all of this money and 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 like condensing the power to one point, and there was tons of corruption, and this is just something that Ukraine has struggled with for years, and you know they're they wanted to get more into that EU style of of living where there's more regulations, there's more uh, corruption, has less room. To breathe because obviously corruption is in every country it doesn't matter where you are um but there's just some countries where they they clamp down on it harder than you know for example ukraine or or a country in africa um like there's levels of corruption in america sure absolutely but you know compared to a place like ethiopia or or like a ukraine like it's there's no it's nowhere close and i think that they're they're trying to lean towards more of that influence and the moment they wanted to you know, Russia tried started seizing their land and started wait, uh, funding a war in the eastern part of their country. So they see that it's like we're trying to break free of this and we can't. You know, it, I, I kind of have a, a little analogy for you. It's like Ukraine is in a relationship with Russia for a long time. It's toxic. It's a real toxic relationship. And they see the West. They see how they're living. They see the kind of prospects that they have. And like, you know what? I think I want to go and have a, a, a relationship with the West here. But as time and time and time goes on, trying to break away from that relationship, 
the Russians do not like those people in the West. They don't like the prospect of, of their baby Ukraine getting into a relationship with them. And I, it's a part of, obviously there's some security concerns, but a part of me can't help but believe that there's some sort of like emotional connection to Ukraine as a country, yeah, sure. having them under that influence for so long. That's a and great way to say that. now finally getting to a point, right? Because yeah. obviously they, they say the security concerns, they say the Nazi stuff. Um, and it, 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 to me, it feels kind of uh, fluffy. And I feel like it's, it's not really getting to the heart of what's really why they're doing it. Um, it but that's kind of like my overall kind of like journalistic right. take on it. That's, that's how I needed you to hear. I, I needed to hear it that way from you just to kind of give a perspective. That's, that's what I was asking. So is it almost like if Arizona tried to go to Mexico and the United States is like, ah, yeah. I mean, it's that kind Precisely. of relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Or if California or if New York tried to go somewhere else and the States just... Uh, that's what I was curious. I was like, explain it to me like that, where I can hear it. Like, and you did it perfectly. Like, so you got your volatile relationship between a guy yeah, and a girl. Another dude shows up. It's all right. We get it. Yeah, it's like the United States, like hate. For example, in this scenario, United States just hates Mexico. Like, you guys really suck. And they've been in a relationship with Texas for a long time. All of a sudden, says Texas. Texas is like, I've had a bad relationship with America for a very long time. I'm seeing how Mexico is living. I really like the way they're living. I know that they have a bad relationship with the United States, but I don't like the way I'm living so much. I'm willing to break off this relationship and try and yeah. join them. Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of seeing the repercussions of someone not doing whatever they can to not let that happen. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's a great way to say it. No, I, that, that explains it a lot better. People can understand that. Yeah. Because that's kind of what war is, like a relationship. Somewhere, somewhere, our elders got pissed, couldn't communicate. They couldn't talk it out, so this is when they send the young ones in and we fight. There's a documentary on kind of the history of Ukraine and the, the war and all of that called Winter on Fire. Have you seen that? No. I, I have, yeah. I watched that right when the war first kicked off just to kind of understand what was going on, and I feel like that explains basically what you said about like the toxic relationship it was just a really oh, it's a great way good way for americans to understand what was going on over there um but about your documentary how are you planning on getting your financing are you gonna do like a kickstart program or are you wanting like a big financier to come in and just you know what the thing is is the only thing i knew is like i needed to get eyeballs yeah towards what i to not only what i was doing you know, personally, but to the film itself. And the reason I made that video in the first place, I didn't want to make uh, the YouTube video that I put out. Like, I was scared as hell to put that thing out there. But a part of me felt that I didn't have the juice to get the film seen. So all I'm trying to do is grab eyeballs at this point, because, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, if you get eyeballs, then other people will become interested and wanting to see to to help you out with a film, or or even to to kickstart the thing, because at the end of the day, more than anything, you need eyeballs. Yeah. And that was kind of just my approach to it. And at this point, that's all I'm trying to do is just get as many eyeballs on you know what I'm doing and on the film itself, you know, as possible. Can we see it? I can send you a link. Yeah. Yeah. That's the most powerful way to do it. Yeah. Because word of mouth. Yeah. Once once somebody lays their yeah. eyes on it, and then they all they have to do is send it to somebody. And most of that stuff happens when you don't know. And it'll just like things landed at your doorstep, other things will too. Someone will get an eye on this thing and they'll 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 help you. That's the the one yeah. thing that, that these podcasts can do, man. They can get the word out. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, we, we would love to see it if you're willing to show it to us and then we can talk after this and see how we can help, you know, share it with other people that would be interested in help funding it. Yeah, so you have something set up so people can follow you right now or anything or are we do, we're in the process of doing that. Yeah, so I got a website for the film. Uh, there's an email list that you can sign up there to 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 get on uh, to the email list of, for like release updates. Um, you know, obviously I also have the YouTube video. It's kind of like an intro to what I'm doing. The link's there as well to the website. Um, that's kind of what I'm at, at the stage I'm at right now. Like the film's done. It's ready to go. It just needs to get the, you know, the, the funding to get that thing off the ground, all the licensing and the insurance costs that come with putting out a film. You know, that's, that's just the only thing. I just got to get that off the ground at this point. Yeah, Roger that. That's awesome. Well, we send it to Hunter and we'll, we'll yeah, tell us the email address together. out loud so they can hear it. The website address. The website, excuse me. Uh, the website is demafilm.com. Demafilm.com. Roger and that's D I M A dot com. D I M A F I L M dot com. Yeah, Demafilm. Oh, Demafilm. Okay. Roger that. And uh, what's your YouTube? Uh, YouTube is at I am Nick Allard, uh, but it, if you just on Instagram, I'll have the YouTube link there. So if you just follow me, you find me on Instagram at I am Nick Allard, I A M N I C K A L L A R D on Instagram, and the link will be in the bio there for sure. Well, man, you're still on your path and you're still learning, so I'm not going to ask you what you pulled from all this just yet because <laughs> it would just be an interim thing. But if you want uh, our listeners to know what's, if you wanted to pass something to them from over there from your perspective, what would that be? Um, this is very real. And I understand that, you know, the one thing that obviously, you know, the big elephant in the room is, is why is this being funded? And obviously everybody has, has good reasons for it. You know, you know, I'm in tune with people are saying in America about it and I understand them. And I think that, you know, obviously they have a lot of concerns, like where the hell is this money going? Why is it going? Um, and what's the purpose of it? Um, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, the film wasn't made to, to sway people's opinions or, or, um, to make them, to make them want to, to keep this thing going. It was more so just to like, to be informed, um, as to what's going on. And if I had a message to anybody, just like, don't forget about it. You don't have to be, you know, posting Ukrainian flags and your Instagram bio and all of that, but just everybody's got a life and they got things to do. But just don't lose sight of it, you know, because I think that there's there are people dying here in numbers that the world has not seen in 80 years. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at the casualty statistics now. We're looking at collectively 500,000 people and growing. I mean, if we want to put that into scale, I mean, in, in Iraq and in, not even to belittle Iraq or Afghanistan at all. Uh, but, you know, a total over 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had, I think it was 8,000, if you correct me, 8,000, 10,000 KIA. Yeah, maybe. Somewhere around there, maybe more. And we're looking in Ukraine in about a year and a half, and we're approaching 500,000 people. Is that split down and the middle between Russia and Ukraine, or is that favored? Split down the middle. I think it's two. I think it, they, it's, it's, nobody really knows. Yeah, I, um, I know Ukraine is losing a lot, and I know Russia is losing a lot, and that both sides are not really transparent at all as to exactly how many have been What's lost. What's the morale like between um, on the soldiers front between the two? Are they starting to get demoralized on either front or getting tired of this or are they just, are they still fired up? You know, I would say it's, it's hard to tell. I was in Zaporizhia, which is about like about a hundred, 
like two, like a, an hour and a half car ride from the front line. Uh, I spent that time in a hostel there. And I, all I can speak from my experience is just being in there in a hostel full of soldiers this time, Ukrainian soldiers. And it was like looking at ghosts. Yeah. Everybody in there is exhausted. And, and you, you've talked to anybody that's out there. It's been going on for a year and a half. A lot of their friends have died. A lot of them are exhausted. You know, I run into Ukrainian soldiers that tell me 80% of my unit is dead. Yeah. Mm. Or I'm the lone, I'm the lone survivor of my squad that I had. And it, it, I'm not going around trying to find these people. I'm just running into them randomly. Sure, that's why um, you're over there. All the time. And they're telling me the stories of what happened to them. And it's just, it just it's, it's barbaric and it's horrific. Um, but the one thing I've noticed in each one of their stories is that they all believe in what they're doing. Yeah. Sure. It's just taking a cost. So do you think um, that this storytelling has given you purpose enough to keep going to other war zones? Do you see yourself going to Israel, to Taiwan, to other places that are seeing conflict? You know, I think at the end of the day, it's not really up to me. You know, I, I kind of have reached this point in my life where it's wherever, wherever he wants me to go. Right. And I believe what I believe in what I'm doing. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if whoever up there wants me to go to wherever to get something done and to, to tell a story, I'll, I'll do it. That's how it works, brother. That's, That's awesome. a great answer. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And, uh, we really hope that this gets, yeah, we'll help you any way we can. Yeah. Getting the word out, get some eyeballs Absolutely. on it. Like Love you said, that. you bet brother. It's all good, man. But keep your head up. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And, man, the good things are coming your way, brother. Just hold the line. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me on, man. God bless of you. Of course. Thank you for uh, calling in from Ukraine. I know it's uh, pretty tough out there, so stay safe. And I'll add his links and his Instagram in the, bot in the show description below. So go check that out. And uh, cannot wait for this documentary to be up and running and for everybody to get to experience this. So with that being said, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.